Great Expectations by Charles Dickens Chapter 5 The apparition of a file of soldiers, bringing down the butt-ends of their loaded muskets on our doorstep, caused the dinner-party to rise from table in confusion, and caused Mrs. Joe, re-entering the kitchen empty-handed, to stop short and stare in her wondering lament of, "'Gracious goodness, gracious me! What's gone with the pie?' The sergeant and I were in the kitchen, and Mrs. Joe stood staring, at which crisis I partially recovered the use of my senses. It was the sergeant who had spoken to me, and he was now looking round at the company, with his handcuffs invitingly extended towards them in his right hand, and his left on my shoulder. "'Excuse me, ladies and gentlemen,' said the sergeant, "'but as I have mentioned, at the door to this smart young shaver—which he hadn't, I want a chase in the name of the King, and I want the blacksmith." "'And pray, what might you want with him?' retorted my sister, quick to resent his being wanted at all. "'Missus,' returned the gallant sergeant, "'speaking for myself, I should reply, the honour and pleasure of his fine wife's acquaintance. Speaking for the King, I answer, a little job done.' This was received as rather neat in the sergeant, insomuch as Mr. Pumblechook cried audibly, "'Ah, oh, good again!' "'You see, blacksmith,' said the sergeant, who had by this time picked out Joe with his eye, "'we have had an accident with these, and I find the lock of one of them goes wrong, and the coupling don't act pretty. As they are wanted for immediate service, will you throw your eye over them?' Joe threw his eye over them and pronounced that the job would necessitate the lighting of his forge-fire, and would take nearer two hours than one. "'Willie, then will you set about it at once, blacksmith?' said the off-hand sergeant, "'as it's on his majesty's service. And if my men can beat a hand anywhere, they'll make themselves useful.' With that, he called to his men, who came trooping into the kitchen one after another, and piled their arms in a corner and then they stood about, as soldiers do, now with their hands loosely clasped before them, now resting a knee or a shoulder, now easing a belt or a pouch, now opening the door to spit stiffly over their high stocks out into the yard. All these things I saw, without then knowing that I saw them, for I was in an agony of apprehension. But beginning to perceive that the handcuffs were not for me, and that the military had so far got the better of the pie, as to put it in the background. I collected a little more of my scattered wits. "'Would you give me the time?' said the sergeant, addressing himself to Mr. Pumblechook, as to a man whose appreciative powers justified the inference that he was equal to the time. "'It's uh, just gone half-past two. "'That's not so bad,' said the sergeant, reflecting. Even if I was forced to halt here nigh two hours, that'll do. How far might you call yourselves from the marshes hereabouts? Not above a mile, I reckon. Just a mile, said Mrs. Joe. That'll do. We begin to close in upon em about dusk. A little before dusk, my orders are. That'll do. A convict, sergeant? asked Mr. Wopsle, in a matter-of-course way. I returned the sergeant. Two. They're pretty well known to be out on the marshes still, 
and they won't try to get clear of him before dusk. Anybody here seen anything of any such game? Everybody, myself excepted, said no, with confidence. Nobody thought of me. Well, said the sergeant, they find themselves trapped in a circle, I expect, sooner than they count on. Now, blacksmith, if you're ready, his majesty the king is. Joe had got his coat and waistcoat and cravat off, and his leather apron on, and passed into the forge. One of the soldiers opened its wooden windows, another lighted the fire, another turned two at the bellows. The rest stood round the blaze, which was soon roaring. Then Joe began to hammer and clink, hammer and clink, and we all looked on. The interest of the impending pursuit not only absorbed the general attention, but even made my sister liberal. She drew a pitcher of beer from the cask for the soldiers, and invited the sergeant to take a glass of brandy. But Mr. Pumblechook said sharply, "'Give him wine, Mum. I'll engage there's no tar in that.' So the sergeant thanked him, and said that as he preferred his drink without tar, he would take wine, if it was equally convenient. When it was given him, he drank His Majesty's health, and compliments of the season, and took it all at a mouthful, and smacked his lips. "'Good stuff, eh, sergeant?' said Mr. Pumblechook. "'I'll tell you something,' returned the sergeant. "'I suspect that stuff's of your providing.' Mr. Pumblechook, with a fat sort of laugh, said, "'Aye, <laughs> aye, why?' "'Because,' returned the sergeant, clapping him on the shoulder, "'you're a man that knows what's what.' <laughs> "'Do you think so?' said Mr. Pumblechook, with his former laugh. Oh, "'Have another glass.' "'With you, hob and nob,' returned the sergeant. "'The top of mine to the foot of yours, the foot of yours to the top of mine. Ring once, ring twice, the best tune on the musical glasses. Your health. May you live a thousand years, and never be a worse judge of the right sort than you are at the present moment of your life." The sergeant tossed off his glass again, and seemed quite ready for another glass. I noticed that Mr. Pumblechook, in his hospitality, appeared to forget that he had made a present of the wine, but took the bottle from Mrs. Joe, and had all the credit of handing it about in a gush of joviality. Even I got some. And he was so very free of the wine, that he even called for the other bottle, and handed that about with the same liberality, when the first was gone. As I watched them, while they all stood clustering about the forge, enjoying themselves so much, I thought what terrible good sauce for a dinner my fugitive friend on the marshes was. They had not enjoyed themselves a quarter so much, before the entertainment was brightened with the excitement he furnished. And now, when they were all in lively anticipation of the two villains being taken, and when the bellows seemed to roar for the fugitives, the fire to flare for them, the smoke to hurry away in pursuit of them, Joe to hammer and clink for them, and all the murky shadows on the wall to shake at them in menace, as the blaze rose and sank, and the red-hot sparks dropped and died, the pale afternoon outside almost seemed in my pitying young fancy to have turned pale on their account. Poor wretches! At last Joe's job was done, 
and the ringing and roaring stopped. As Joe got on his coat, he mustered courage to propose that some of us should go down with the soldiers, and see what came of the hunt. Mr. Pumblechook and Mr. Hubble declined, on the plea of a pipe and ladies' society. But Mr. Wopsle said he would go, if Joe would. Joe said he was agreeable, and would take me, if Mrs. Joe approved. We never should have got leave to go, I am sure, but for Mrs. Joe's curiosity to know all about it, and how it ended. As it was, she merely stipulated, "'If you bring the boy back, with his head blown to bits by a musket, don't look to me to put it together again.' The sergeant took a polite leave of the ladies, and parted from Mr. Pumblechook as from a comrade, though I doubt if he were quite as fully sensible of that gentleman's merits under arid conditions as when something moist was going. His men resumed their muskets and fell in. Mr. Wopsle, Joe, and I received strict charge to keep in the rear, and to speak no word after we reached the marshes. When we were all out in the raw air, and were steadily moving towards our business, I treasonably whispered to Joe, "'I hope, Joe, we shan't find them.' And Joe whispered to me, "'I'd give a shilling if they had cut and run, Pip.' We were joined by no stragglers from the village, for the weather was cold and threatening, the way dreary, the footing bad, darkness coming on, and the people had good fires indoors, and were keeping the day. A few faces hurried to glowing windows, and looked after us, but none came out. We passed the finger-post, and held straight on to the churchyard. There we were stopped a few minutes by a signal from the sergeant's hand, while two or three of his men dispersed themselves among the graves, and also examined the porch. They came in again, without finding anything, and then we struck out on the open marshes, through the gate at the side of the churchyard. A bitter sleet came rattling against us here on the east wind, and Joe took me on his back. Now that we were out upon the dismal wilderness, where they little thought I had been within eight or nine hours, and had seen both men hiding, I considered for the first time, with great dread, if we should come upon them, would my particular convict suppose that it was I who had brought the soldiers there? He had asked me if I was a deceiving imp, and he had said I should be a fierce young hound if I joined the hunt against him. Would he believe that I was both imp and hound in treacherous earnest, and had betrayed him? It was of no use asking myself this question now. There I was on Joe's back, and there was Joe beneath me, charging at the ditches like a hunter, and stimulating Mr. Wopsle not to tumble on his Roman nose, and to keep up with us. The soldiers were in front of us, extending into a pretty wide line, with an interval between man and man. We were taking the course I had begun with, and from which I had diverged in the mist. Either the mist was not out again yet, or the wind had dispelled it. Under the low red glare of sunset, the beacon and the gibbet and the mound of the battery and the opposite shore of the river were plain, though all of a watery lead colour. With my heart thumping like a blacksmith at Joe's broad shoulder, I looked all about for any sign of the convicts. I could see none. I could hear none. Mr. Wopsle had greatly alarmed me more than once by his blowing and hard breathing, but I knew the sounds by this time and could dissociate them from the object of pursuit. I got a dreadful start, when I thought I heard the file still going, but it was only a sheep-bell. The sheep stopped in their eating, 
and looked timidly at us. And the cattle, their heads turned from the wind and sleet, stared angrily, as if they held us responsible for both annoyances. But except these things, and the shudder of the dying day in every blade of grass, there was no break in the bleak stillness of the marshes. The soldiers were moving on in the direction of the old battery, and we were moving on a little way behind them, when all of a sudden we all stopped. For they had reached us on the wings of the wind and rain, a long shout. It was repeated. It was at a distance towards the east, but it was long and loud. Nay, there seemed to be two or more shouts raised together, if one might judge from a confusion in the sound. To this effect the sergeant and the nearest men were speaking under their breath, when Joe and I came up. After another moment's listening, Joe, who was a good judge, agreed, and Mr. Wopsle, who was a bad judge, agreed. The sergeant, a decisive man, ordered that the sound should not be answered, but that the course should be changed, and that his men should make towards it at the double. So we slanted to the right, where the east was, and Joe pounded away so wonderfully that I had to hold on tight to keep my seat. It was a run indeed now, and what Joe called, in the only two words he spoke all the time, a winder. Down banks and up banks, and over gates, and splashing into dikes, and breaking among coarse rushes, no man cared where he went. As we came nearer to the shouting, it became more and more apparent that it was made by more than one voice. Sometimes it seemed to stop altogether, and then the soldiers stopped. When it broke out again, the soldiers made for it at a greater rate than ever, and we after them. After a while, we had so run it down, that we could hear one voice calling, Murder! And another voice, Cornwicks! Runaways! God! This way for the runaway Cornwicks! Then both voices would seem to be stifled in a struggle, and then would break out again. And when it had come to this, the soldiers ran like deer, and Joe too. The sergeant ran in first, when we had run the noise quite down, and two of his men ran in close upon him. Their pieces were cocked and levelled when we all ran in. "'Here are both the men,' panted the sergeant, struggling at the bottom of a ditch. "'Surrender, you two, and confound you for two wild beasts. Come asunder!' Water was splashing, and mud was flying, and oaths were being sworn, and blows were being struck, when some more men went down into the ditch to help the sergeant, and dragged out separately my convict and the other one. Both were bleeding and panting and execrating and struggling, but of course I knew them both directly. "'Mind!' said my convict, wiping blood from his face with his ragged sleeves, and shaking torn hair from his fingers. I took him. I give him up to you. Mind that. It's not much to be particular about, said the sergeant. It'll do you small good, my man, being in the same plight yourself. Handcuffs there. I don't expect it to do me any good. I don't want it to do me more good than it does now, said my convict, with a greedy laugh. <laughs> he took him. He knows it. That's enough for me." The other convict was livid to look at, and, in addition to the old bruised left side of his face, seemed to be bruised and torn all over. 
he could not so much as get his breath to speak, until they were both separately handcuffed, but leaned upon a soldier to keep himself from falling. "'Take notice, God! He tried to murder me!' were his first words. "'Try to murder him?' said my convict disdainfully. "'Try, and not do it. I took him, and give him up. That's what I done. I not only prevented him getting off the marshes, but I dragged him here, dragged him this far on his way back. He's a gentleman, if you please, this willain. Now the hulks has got its gentleman again through me. Murder him? Worth my while, too, to murder him, when I could do worse and drag him back. The other one still gasped. He tried, he tried to murder me. Bear, bear witness. Looky here, said my convict to the sergeant. Single-handed, I got clear of the prison ship. I made a dash, and I done it. I could have got clear of these death-cold flats likewise. Look at my leg. You won't find much iron on it. If I hadn't made the discovery that he was here, let him go free. Let him profit by the means as I found out. Let him make a tool of me afresh and again. Once more. No, no, no. If I had died at the bottom there, and he made an emphatic swing at the ditch with his manacled hands, I'd have held to him with that grip, that you should have been safe to find him in my hold. The other fugitive, who was evidently in extreme horror of his companion, repeated, "'He tried to murder me! I should have been a dead man if you had not come up!' "'He lies,' said my convict, with fierce energy. "'He's a liar born, and he'll die a liar. Look at his face. Ain't it written there? Let him turn those eyes of his on me. I defy him to do it!' The other with an effort at a scornful smile, which could not, however, collect the nervous working of his mouth into any set expression, looked at the soldiers, and looked about at the marshes and at the sky, but certainly did not look at the speaker. "'Do you see him?' pursued my convict. "'Do you see what a villain he is? Do you see those grovelling and wandering eyes? That's how he looked when we were tried together. He never looked at me.' The other, always working and working his dry lips, and turning his eyes restlessly about him, far and near, did at last turn them for a moment on the speaker with the words, "'You are not much to look at,' and with a half-taunting glance at the bound hands. At that point my convict became so frantically exasperated that he would have rushed upon him, but for the interposition of the soldiers. "'Didn't I tell you?' said the other convict then. "'that he would murder me, if he could!' And any one could see that he shook with fear, and that there broke out upon his lips curious white flakes, like thin snow. "'Enough of this, Polly,' said the sergeant. "'Light those torches!' As one of the soldiers, who carried a basket in lieu of a gun, went down on his knee to open it, my convict looked round him for the first time, and saw me. I had alighted from Joe's back on the brink of the ditch where we came up, and had not moved since. I looked at him eagerly when he looked at me, 
and slightly moved my hands, and shook my head. I had been waiting for him to see me, that I might try to assure him of my innocence. It was not at all expressed to me that he even comprehended my intention, for he gave me a look that I did not understand, and it all passed in a moment. But if he had looked at me for an hour or for a day, I could not have remembered his face ever afterwards, as having been more attentive. The soldier with the basket soon got a light, and lighted three or four torches, and took one himself and distributed the others. It had been almost dark before, but now it seemed quite dark, and soon afterwards very dark. Before we departed from that spot, four soldiers, standing in a ring, fired twice into the air. Presently we saw other torches kindled at some distance behind us, and others on the marshes on the opposite bank of the river. "'All right,' said the sergeant. "'March!' We had not gone far, when three cannon were fired ahead of us, with a sound that seemed to burst something inside my ear. "'You are expected on board,' said the sergeant to my convict. "'They know you are coming. Don't straggle, my man. Close up here.' The two were kept apart, and each walked, surrounded by a separate guard. I had hold of Joe's hand now, and Joe carried one of the torches. Mr. Wopsle had been for going back, but Joe was resolved to see it out, so he went on with the party. There was a reasonably good path now, mostly on the edge of the river, with a divergence here and there, where a dyke came, with a miniature windmill on it, and a muddy sluice-gate. When I looked round, I could see the other lights coming in after us. The torches were carried, dropped great blotches of fire upon the track, and I could see those, too, lying smoking and flaring. I could see nothing else but black darkness. Our lights warmed the air about us with their pitchy blaze, and the two prisoners seemed rather to like that, as they limped along in the midst of the muskets. We could not go fast, because of their lameness, and they were so spent that two or three times we had to halt while they rested. After an hour or so of this travelling, we came to a rough wooden hut and a landing-place. There was a guard in the hut, and they challenged, and the sergeant answered. Then we went into the hut, where there was a smell of tobacco and whitewash, and a bright fire and a lamp, and a stand of muskets, and a drum, and a low wooden bedstead, like an overgrown mangle without the machinery, capable of holding about a dozen soldiers all at once. Three or four soldiers were lay upon it in their greatcoats, were not much interested in us, but just lifted their heads and took a sleepy stare and then lay down again. The sergeant made some kind of report, and some entry in a book, and then the convict, whom I call the other convict, was drafted off with his guard to go on board first. My convict never looked at me, except that once. While we stood in the hut, he stood before the fire looking thoughtfully at it, or putting up his feet by turns upon the hob, and looking thoughtfully at them as if he pitied them for their recent adventures. Suddenly he turned to the sergeant and remarked, "'I wish to say something respecting this escape. It may prevent some persons laying under suspicion along of me.' "'You can say what you like,' returned the sergeant, standing coolly looking at him with his arms folded. "'But you have no call to say it here. You'll have opportunity enough to say about it, and hear about it, before it's done with, you know.' "'I know.' But this is another pint, 
a separate matter. A man can't starve, at least I can't. I took some whittles up at the village over yonder, where the church stands, and most out on the marshes. You mean stole? said the sergeant. And I'll tell you where from. From the blacksmiths. Hello, said the sergeant, staring at Joe. Hello, Pip, said Joe, staring at me. It was some broken whittles. That's what it was. And a dram of liquor. And a pie. Have you happened to miss such an article as a pie, blacksmith? asked the sergeant, confidentially. My wife did, at the very moment when you came in. Don't you know, Pip? So, said my convict, turning his eyes on Joe in a moody manner, and without the least glance at me, So you're the blacksmith, are you? Then I'm sorry to say, I've eat your pie. God knows you're welcome to it, so far as it was ever mine, returned Joe, with a saving remembrance of Mrs. Joe. We don't know what you have done, but we wouldn't have you starve to death for it. Poor miserable fellow creature, would us pip. The something that I had noticed before clicked in the man's throat again, and he turned his back. The boat had returned, and his guard were ready, so we followed him to the landing-place, made of rough stakes and stones, and saw him put into the boat, which was rowed by a crew of convicts like himself. No one seemed surprised to see him, or interested in seeing him, or glad to see him, or sorry to see him, or spoke a word, except that somebody in the boat growled, as if to dogs, "'Give way, you!' which was the signal for the dip of the oars. By the light of the torches, we saw the black hulk lying out a little way from the mud of the shore, like a wicked Noah's Ark, cribbed and barred and moored by massive rusty chains. The prison-ship seemed in my young eyes to be ironed like the prisoners. We saw the boat go alongside, and we saw him taken up the side and disappear. Then the ends of the torches were flung hissing into the water, and went out, as if it were all over with him. End of chapter 5 Great Expectations by Charles Dickens Chapter 6 My state of mind, regarding the pilfering from which I had been so unexpectedly exonerated, did not impel me to frank disclosure, but I hope it had some dregs of good at the bottom of it. I do not recall that I felt any tenderness of conscience in reference to Mrs. Joe, when the fear of being found out was lifted off me. But I loved Joe, perhaps for no better reason in those early days than because the dear fellow let me love him. And, as to him, my inner self was not so easily composed. It was much upon my mind, particularly when I first saw him looking about for his file, that I ought to tell Joe the whole truth. Yet I did not, and for the reason that I mistrusted that if I did, he would think me worse than I was. The fear of losing Joe's confidence, and of thenceforth sitting in the chimney-corner at night, staring drearily at my forever lost companion and friend, tied up my tongue. I morbidly represented to myself that if Joe knew it, I never afterwards could see him at the fireside, feeling his fair whisker, without thinking that he was meditating on it that, if Joe knew it, 
I never afterwards could see him glance however casually at yesterday's meat or pudding when it came on to-day's table, without thinking that he was debating whether I had been in the pantry. That if Joe knew it, and at any subsequent period of our joint domestic life remarked that his beer was flat or thick, the conviction that he suspected tar in it would bring a rush of blood to my face. In a word, I was too cowardly to do what I knew to be right, as I had been too cowardly to avoid doing what I knew to be wrong. I had had no intercourse with the world at that time, and I imitated none of its many inhabitants who act in this manner. Quite an untaught genius, I made the discovery of the line of action for myself. As I was sleepy, before we were far away from the prison ship, Joe took me on his back again, and carried me home. He must have had a tiresome journey of it, for Mr. Wopsle, being knocked up, was in such a very bad temper, that if the church had been thrown open, he would probably have excommunicated the whole expedition, beginning with Joe and myself. In his lay capacity, he persisted in sitting down in the damp to such an insane extent, that when his coat was taken off to be dried at the kitchen fire, the circumstantial evidence on his trousers would have hanged him if it had been a capital offence. By that time, I was staggering on the kitchen floor like a little drunkard, through having been newly set upon my feet, and through having been fast asleep, and through waking in the heat and lights and noise of tongues. As I came to myself, with the aid of a heavy thump between the shoulders, and the restorative exclamation, "'Yah! Was there ever such a boy as this?' from my sister, I found Joe telling them about the convict's confession, and all the visitors suggesting different ways by which he had got into the pantry. Mr. Pumblechook made out, after carefully surveying the premises, that he had first got upon the roof of the forge, and had then got upon the roof of the house, and had then let himself down the kitchen chimney, by a rope made of his bedding cut into strips, and as Mr. Pumblechook was very positive, and drove his own chaise cart over everybody, it was agreed that it must be so. Mr. Wopsle, indeed, wildly cried out, No! with the feeble malice of a tired man, but as he had no theory, and no coat on, he was unanimously set at naught, not to mention his smoking hard behind, as he stood with his back to the kitchen fire to draw the damp out, which was not calculated to inspire confidence. This was all I heard that night, before my sister clutched me as a slumbrous offence to the company's eyesight, and assisted me up to bed with such a strong hand that I seemed to have fifty boots on, and to be dangling them all against the edges of the stairs. My state of mind, as I have described it, began before I was up in the morning, and lasted long after the subject had died out, and had ceased to be mentioned, saving on exceptional occasions. End of chapter 6 Great Expectations by Charles Dickens Chapter 7 At the time when I stood in the churchyard, reading the family tombstones, I had just enough learning to be able to spell them out. My construction, even at their simple meaning, was not very correct, for I read, Wife of the Above, as a complimentary reference to my father's exaltation to a better world. And if any one of my deceased relations had been referred to as below, I have no doubt I should have formed the worst opinions of that member of the family. 
Neither were my notions of the theological positions to which my catechism bound me at all accurate, for I have a lively remembrance that I supposed my declaration that I was to walk in the same all the days of my life laid me under an obligation always to go through the village from our house in one particular direction, and never to vary it by turning down by the wheelwrights or up by the mill. When I was old enough, I was to be apprenticed to Joe, and until I could assume that dignity, I was not to be what Mrs. Joe called pompied, or, as I render it, pampered. Therefore, I was not only odd boy about the forge, but if any neighbour happened to want an extra boy to frighten birds, or pick up stones, or do any such job, I was favoured with the employment. In order, however, that our superior position might not be compromised thereby, a money-box was kept on the kitchen mantel-shelf, into which it was publicly made known that all my earnings were dropped. I have an impression that they were to be contributed eventually towards the liquidation of the national debt but I know I had no hope of any personal participation in the treasure. Mr. Wopsle's great-aunt kept an evening-school in the village. That is to say, she was a ridiculous old woman of limited means and unlimited infirmity, who used to go to sleep from six to seven every evening, in the society of youth, who paid tuppence per week each for the improving opportunity of seeing her do it. She rented a small cottage, and Mr. Wopsle had the room upstairs where we students used to overhear him reading aloud in a most dignified and terrific manner, and occasionally bumping on the ceiling. There was a fiction that Mr. Wopsle examined the scholars once a quarter. What he did on those occasions was to turn up his cuffs, stick up his hair, and give us Mark Antony's oration over the body of Caesar. This was always followed by Collins' ode on the passions, wherein I particularly venerated Mr. Wopsle as revenge, throwing his blood-stained sword in thunder down, and taking the war-denouncing trumpet with a withering look. It was not with me then, as it was in later life, when I fell into the society of the passions, and compared them with Collins and Wopsle, rather to the disadvantage of both gentlemen. Mr. Wopsle's great-aunt, besides keeping this educational institution, kept in the same room, a little general shop. She had no idea what stock she had, or what the price of anything in it was, but there was a little greasy memorandum-book kept in a drawer, which served as a catalogue of prices, and by this oracle Biddy arranged all the shop transaction. Biddy was Mr. Wopsle's great-aunt's granddaughter. I confess myself quite unequal to the working out of the problem what relation she was to Mr. Wopsle. She was an orphan like myself, like me, too, had been brought up by hand. She was most noticeable, I thought, in respect of her extremities, for her hair always wanted brushing, her hands always wanted washing, and her shoes always wanted mending and pulling up at heel. This description must be received with a weekday limitation. On Sundays she went to church, elaborated. Much of my unassisted self and more by the help of Biddy than of Mr. Wopsle's great-aunt, I struggled through the alphabet, as if it had been a bramble-bush, getting considerably worried and scratched by every letter. After that, I fell among those thieves, the nine figures, who seemed every evening to do something new to disguise themselves, and baffle recognition. But, at last, 
I began, in a purblind, groping way, to read, write, and cipher on the very smallest scale. One night I was sitting in the chimney-corner with my slate, expending great efforts on the production of a letter to Joe. I think it must have been a full year after our hunt upon the marshes, for it was a long time after, and it was winter, and a hard frost. With an alphabet on the hearth at my feet for reference, I contrived in an hour or two to print and smear this epistle. My dear Joe, I hope you are care-white. Well, I hope I shall son be habel for to teach you, Joe, and then we shall be so glad. And when I m pregnant to you, Joe, what larks, and believe me, inf exen pip. There was no indispensable necessity for my communicating with Joe by letter, inasmuch as he sat beside me, and we were alone. But I delivered this written communication, slate and all, with my own hand, and Joe received it as a miracle of erudition. "'I say, Pip, old chap,' cried Joe, opening his blue eyes wide, "'what a scholar you are, aren't you?' "'I should like to be,' said I, glancing at the slate as he held it, with a misgiving that the writing was rather hilly. "'Why, here's a J, said Joe, "'and a O, equal to anything. "'Here's a J, and a O, Pip, and a J-O, Joe. I had never heard Joe read aloud to any greater extent than this monosyllable, and I had observed at church last Sunday, when I accidentally held our prayer-book upside down, that it seemed to suit his convenience quite as well as if it had been all right. Wishing to embrace the present occasion of finding out whether in teaching Joe I should have to begin quite at the beginning, I said, Ah, but read the rest, Joe. "'The rest, eh, Pip?' said Joe, looking at it with a slowly searching eye. "'One, two, three. Why, here's three J's, and three O's, and three J-O. Joe's in it, Pip.' I leant over Joe, and, with the aid of my forefinger, read him the whole letter. "'Astonishing!' said Joe, when I had finished. You are a scholar. How do you spell Gargery, Joe? I asked him, with a modest patronage. I don't spell it at all, said Joe. But supposing you did? It can't be supposed, said Joe, though I'm uncommon fond of reading, too. Are you, Joe? Uncommon. Give me, said Joe, a good book or a good newspaper, and sit me down afore a good fire, and I ask no better. Lord," he continued, after rubbing his knees a little, "'when you do come to a J, and a O, and says you, here at last is a J-O, Joe, how interesting reading is!' I derived from this last, that Joe's education, like steam, was yet in its infancy. Pursuing the subject, I inquired, "'Didn't you ever go to school, Joe?' 
when you were as little as me? No, Pip. Why didn't you ever go to school, Joe, when you were as little as me? Well, Pip, said Joe, taking up the poker, and settling himself to his usual occupation when he was thoughtful, of slowly raking the fire between the lower bars. I'll tell you. My father, Pip, he were given to drink, and when he were overtook with drink, he hammered away at my mother, most unmerciful. It were almost the only hammering he did, indeed, exceptin' at myself. And he hammered at me with a wigger only to be equalled by the wigger with which he didn't hammer at his anvil. You're listening and understanding, Pip. Yes, Joe. Consequence, my mother and me, we ran away from my father several times, and then my mother, she'd go out to work, and she'd say, Joe, she'd say, now please God, you shall have some schooling, child, and she put me to school. But my father were that good in his heart that he couldn't abear to be without us. So he'd come with a most tremendous crowd, and make such a row at the doors of the houses where we was, that they used to be obligated to have no more to do with us and to give us up to him. And then he took us home and hammered us. Which you see, Pip, said Joe, pausing in his meditative raking of the fire and looking at me, were a drawback on my learning. Certainly, poor Joe. Though, mind you, Pip, said Joe, with a judicial touch or two of the poker on the top bar, rendering unto all their due, and maintaining equal justice betwixt man and man, my father were that good in his heart. Don't you see? I didn't see, but I didn't say so. Well, Joe pursued, somebody must keep the pot a bilin, Pip, or the pot won't bile, don't you know? I saw that, and said so. Consequence, my father didn't make objections to my going to work. So I went to work, to work, at my present calling, which was his too, if you would have followed it, and I worked tolerable hard, I assure you, Pip. In time I were able to keep him, and I kept him, till he went off in a purple leptic fit, and it were my intentions to have had put upon his tombstone, and whatsoever the failings on his part. Remember, reader, he were that good in his art. Joe recited this couplet with such manifest pride and careful perspicuity that I asked him if he had made it himself. "'I made it,' said Joe, "'my own self. I made it in a moment. It was like striking out a horseshoe complete in a single blow. I never was so much surprised in all my life. Couldn't credit my own head. To tell you the truth, hardly believed it were my own head.' As I was saying, Pip, it were my intentions to have had it cut over him. But poetry costs money. Cut it how you will, small or large, and it were not done. Not to mention bearers. All the money that could be spared were wanted for my mother. She were in poor health, and quite broke. She weren't long of following, poor soul, and her share of peace come round at last. Joe's blue eyes turned a little watery. He rubbed, first one of them, and then the other, in a most uncongenial and uncomfortable manner, 
with the round knob on the top of the poker. "'It were but lonesome, then,' said Joe, "'living here alone, and I got acquainted with your sister. Now, Pip—Joe looked firmly at me, as if he knew I was not going to agree with him—your sister is a fine figure of a woman.' I could not help looking at the fire, in an obvious state of doubt. "'Whatever family opinions, or whatever the world's opinions, on that subject may be, Pip, your sister is—Joe tapped the top bar with the poker, after every word following—a fine figure of a woman.' I could think of nothing better to say than, "'I'm glad you think so, Joe.' "'So am I,' returned Joe, catching me up. "'I am glad I think so, Pip. A little redness?' or a little matter of bone, here or there, what does it signify to me?" I sagaciously observed, if it didn't signify to him, to whom did it signify? "'Certainly,' assented Joe. "'That's it. You're right, old chap. When I got acquainted with your sister, it were the talk how she was bringing you up by hand. Very kind of her, too, all the folks said, and I said, along with all the folks, as to you," Joe pursued, with a countenance expressive of seeing something very nasty indeed, "'if you could have been aware how small and flabby and mean you was, dear me, you'd have formed the most contemptible opinion of yourself.' Not exactly relishing this, I said, "'Never mind me, Joe.' "'But I did mind you, Pip,' he returned, with tender simplicity. When I offered to your sister to keep company, and to be asked in church at such times as she was willing, and ready to come to the forge, I said to her, And bring the poor little child. God bless the poor little child. I said to your sister, There's room for him at the forge. I broke out crying, and begging pardon, and hugged Joe round the neck, who dropped the poker to hug me, and to say, Ever the best of friends, Antus Pip. Don't cry, old chap." When this little interruption was over, Joe resumed. "'Well, you see, Pip, and here we are. That's about where it lights. Here we are. Now, when you take me in hand in my learning, Pip, and I tell you beforehand, I'm an awful dull, most awful dull, Mrs. Joe mustn't see too much of what we're up to. It must be done, as I may say, on the sly. And why on the sly? I'll tell you why, Pip." He had taken up the poker again, without which I doubt if he could have proceeded in his demonstration. "'Your sister is given to government.' "'Given to government, Joe?' I was startled, for I had some shadowy idea, and I'm afraid I must add hope that Joe had divorced her in favour of the Lords of the Admiralty, or Treasury. "'Given to government,' said Joe, "'which I mean to say, the government of you and myself.' "'Oh! And she ain't over-partial to having scholars on the premises,' Joe continued, "'and in particular would not be over-partial to my being a scholar, for fear as I might rise like a sort of rebel, don't you see?" I was going to retort with an inquiry, and had got as far as, "'Why?' 
when Joe stopped me. "'Stay a bit. I know what you're a-going to say, Pip. Stay a bit. I don't deny that your sister comes the mogul over us, now and again. I don't deny that she do throw us backfalls, and that she do drop down upon us heavy. At such times as when your sister is on the rampage, Pip—' Joe sank his voice to a whisper, and glanced at the door. "'Candor compels for to admit that she is a buster.' Joe pronounced this word, as if it began with at least twelve capital B's. "'Why don't I rise? That were your observation when I broke it off, Pip?' "'Yes, Joe.' "'Well,' said Joe, passing the poker into his left hand, that he might feel his whisker. And I had no hope of him whenever he took to that placid occupation. "'Your sister's a mastermind. A mastermind.' "'What's that?' I asked, in some hope of bringing him to a stand. But Joe was readier with his definition than I had expected, and completely stopped me by arguing circularly, and answering with a fixed look, "'Her! And I am a mastermind,' Joe resumed, when he had unfixed his look, and got back to his whisker. "'And last of all, Pip, and this I want to say, very serious to you, old chap, I see so much in my poor mother, of a woman drudging and slaving and breaking her honest heart, and never getting no peace in her mortal days, that I'm dead afeard of going wrong in the way of not doing what's right by a woman, and I'd fur rather of the two go wrong the t'other way, and be a little ill-convenienced myself. I wish it was only me that got put out, Pip. I wish there warn't no tickler for you, old chap. I wish I could take it all on myself. But this is the up and down and straight on it, Pip, and I hope you'll overlook shortcomings." Young as I was, I believe that I dated a new admiration of Joe from that night. We were equals afterwards, as we had been before. But afterwards, at quiet times, when I sat looking at Joe, and thinking about him, I had a new sensation of feeling conscious that I was looking up to Joe in my heart. "'However,' said Joe, rising to replenish the fire, "'here's the Dutch clock, a-working himself up to being equal to strike eight of them, and she's not come home yet. I hope Uncle Pumblechook's mare mayn't have set a forefoot on a piece of ice and gone down.' Mrs. Joe made occasional trips with Uncle Pumblechook on market-days, to assist him in buying such household stuffs and goods as required a woman's judgment. Uncle Pumblechook, being a bachelor, and reposing no confidences in his domestic servant, this was market-day, and Mrs. Joe was out on one of these expeditions. Joe made the fire, and swept the hearth, and then we went to the door to listen for the chaise-cart. It was a dry, cold night, and the wind blew keenly, and the frost was white and hard. A man could die to-night of lying out on the marshes, I thought. And then I looked at the stars and considered how awful it would be for a man to turn his face up to them as he froze to death, and see no help or pity in all the glittering multitude. "'Here comes the mare,' said Joe, "'ringing like a peal of bells.' The sound of her iron shoes upon the hard road was quite musical, as she came along at a much brisker trot than usual. We got a chair out, ready for Mrs. Joe's alighting, 
and stirred up the fire that they might see a bright window, and took a final survey of the kitchen that nothing might be out of its place. When we had completed these preparations, they drove up, wrapped to the eyes. Mrs. Joe was soon landed, and Uncle Pumblechook was soon down too, covering the mare with a cloth, and we were soon all in the kitchen, carrying so much cold air in with us that it seemed to drive all the heat out of the fire. "'No,' said Mrs. Joe, unwrapping herself with haste and excitement, and throwing her bonnet back on her shoulders, where it hung by the strings, "'if this boy ain't grateful this night, he never will be.' I looked as grateful as any boy possibly could, who was wholly uninformed why he ought to assume that expression. "'It's only to be hoped,' said my sister, "'that he won't be pompied. But I have my fears.' "'She, uh, ain't in that line, mum,' said Mr. Pumblechook. "'She knows better.' "'She?' I looked at Joe, making the motion with my lips and eyebrows. "'She?' Joe looked at me, making the motion with his lips and eyebrows. She? My sister catching him in the act, he drew the back of his hand across his nose, with his usual conciliatory air on such occasions, and looked at her. "'Well,' said my sister, in her snappish way, "'what are you staring at? Is the house afire?' "'Which, uh, some individual,' Joe politely hinted, "'mentioned she.' "'And she is a she, I suppose,' said my sister, "'unless you call Miss Havisham a he, and I doubt if even you'll go so far as that.' "'Miss Havisham? Uptown?' said Joe. "'Is there any Miss Havisham downtown?' returned my sister. "'She wants this boy to go and play there, and of course he's going, and he had better play there,' said my sister shaking her head at me as an encouragement to be extremely light and sportive, or I'll work him. I had heard of Miss Havisham uptown. Everybody for miles round had heard of Miss Havisham uptown, as an immensely rich and grim lady, who lived in a large and dismal house, barricaded against robbers, and who led a life of seclusion. "'Well, to be sure,' said Joe, astounded. "'I wonder how she come to know Pip?' "'Noodle!' cried my sister. "'Who said she knew him?' "'Which some individual,' Joe again politely hinted, "'mentioned that she wanted him to go and play there. "'And couldn't she ask Uncle Pumblechook "'if he knew of a boy to go and play there? "'Isn't it just barely possible "'that Uncle Pumblechook may be a tenant of hers?' and that he may sometimes, we won't say quarterly or half-yearly, for that would be requiring too much of you, but sometimes go there to pay his rent. And couldn't she then ask Uncle Pumblechook if he knew of a boy to go and play there? And couldn't Uncle Pumblechook, being always considerate and thoughtful for us, though you may not think it, Joseph?' In a tone of the deepest reproach, as if he were the most callous of nephews, "'Then mention this boy, standing prancing here.' which I solemnly declare I was not doing, that I have for ever been a willing slave to. "'Good again!' cried Uncle Pumblechook. "'Well put! <laughs> Prettily pointed! Good indeed! Now, Joseph, you know the case.' "'No, Joseph,' said my sister, still in a reproachful manner, 
while Joe apologetically drew the back of his hand across and across his nose. "'You do not yet, though you may not think it, know the case. You may consider that you do, but you do not, Joseph. For you do not know that Uncle Pumblechook, being sensible that for anything we can tell, this boy's fortune may be made by his going to Miss Havisham's, has offered to take him into town to-night in his own chaise-cart, and to keep him to-night, and to take him with his own hands to Miss Havisham's to-morrow morning. "'And, Lord mercy me!' cried my sister, casting off her bonnet in sudden desperation. "'Here I stand, talking to mere moon-calves, with Uncle Pumblechook waiting, and the mare catching cold at the door, and the boy grimed with crock and dirt from the hair of his head to the sole of his foot.' With that, she pounced upon me, like an eagle on a lamb, and my face was squeezed into a wooden bowls in sinks, and my head was put under taps of water-butts, and I was soaped and kneaded and towelled and thumped and harrowed and rasped, until I really was quite beside myself. I may here remark that I suppose myself to be better acquainted than any living authority with the ridgy effect of a wedding-ring passing unsympathetically over the human countenance. When my ablutions were completed, I was put into clean linen of the stiffest character, like a young penitent into sackcloth, and was trussed up in my tightest and fearfullest suit. I was then delivered over to Mr. Pumblechook, who formally received me as if he were the sheriff, and who let off upon me the speech that I knew he had been dying to make all along. "'Boy!' Be forever grateful to all friends, but especially unto them which brought you up by hand. Good-bye, Joe. God bless you, Pip, old chap. I had never parted from him before, and what with my feelings and what with soapsuds, I could at first see no stars from the chaise cart, but they twinkled out one by one without throwing any light on the questions why on earth I was going to play at Miss Havisham's, and what on earth I was expected to play at. End of chapter 7 Great Expectations by Charles Dickens Chapter 8 Mr. Pumblechook's premises in the high street of the market-town were of a peppercorny and farinaceous character, as the premises of a corn-chandler and seedsman should be, it appeared to me that he must be a very happy man indeed, to have so many little drawers in his shop, and I wondered, when I peeped into one or two on the lower tiers, and saw the tied-up brown paper packets inside, whether the flower-seeds and bulbs ever wanted of a fine day to break out of those jails and bloom. It was in the early morning after my arrival that I entertained the speculation. On the previous night, I had been sent straight to bed, in an attic with a sloping roof, which was so low in the corner where the bedstead was, that I calculated the tiles as being within a foot of my eyebrows. In the same early morning, I discovered a singular affinity between seeds and corduroys. Mr. Pumblechook wore corduroys, and so did his shopman, and somehow there was a general air and flavour about the corduroys so much in the nature of seeds, and a general air and flavour about the seeds, so much in the nature of corduroys, that I hardly knew which was which. The same opportunity served me for noticing that Mr. Pumblechook appeared to conduct his business by looking across the street at the saddler, who appeared to transact his business 
by keeping his eye on the coachmaker, who appeared to get on in life by putting his hands in his pockets and contemplating the baker, who in his turn folded his arms and stared at the grocer, who stood at his door and yawned at the chemist. The watchmaker, always poring over a little desk with a magnifying glass at his eye, and always inspected by a group of smock-frocks poring over him through the glass of his shop-window, seemed to be about the only person in the high street whose trade engaged his attention. Mr. Pumblechook and I breakfasted at eight o'clock in the parlour behind the shop, while the shopman took his mug of tea and hunch of bread and butter on a sack of peas in the front premises. I considered Mr. Pumblechook wretched company. Besides being possessed by my sister's idea that a mortifying and penitential character ought to be imparted to my diet, besides giving me as much crumb as possible in combination with as little butter, and putting such a quantity of warm water into my milk, that it would have been more candid to have left the milk out altogether. His conversation consisted of nothing but arithmetic. On my politely bidding him good morning, he said pompously, Seven times nine, boy. And how should I be able to answer, dodged in that way, in a strange place on an empty stomach? I was hungry, but before I had swallowed a morsel, he began a running sum that lasted all through the breakfast. Seven and four and eight and six and two and ten and so on. And after each figure was disposed of, it was as much as I could do to get a bite or a sup before the next came, while he sat at his ease guessing nothing, and eating bacon and hot roll in, if I may be allowed the expression, a gorging and gormandizing manner. For such reasons I was very glad when ten o'clock came, and we started for Miss Havisham's though I was not at all at my ease regarding the manner in which I should acquit myself under that lady's roof. Within a quarter of an hour we came to Miss Havisham's house, which was of old brick and dismal, and had great many iron bars to it. Some of the windows had been walled up. Of those that remained, all the lower were rustily barred. There was a courtyard in front, and that was barred, so we had to wait, after ringing the bell, until someone should come to open it. While we waited at the gate, I peeped in. Even then, Mr. Pumblechook said, "'And fourteen? But I pretended not to hear him, and saw that at the side of the house there was a large brewery. No brewing was going on in it, and none seemed to have gone on for a long, long time. A window was raised, and a clear voice demanded, "'What name?' To which my conductor replied, Pumblechook. The voice returned, Quite right. And the window was shut again, and a young lady came across the courtyard with keys in her hand. This, said Mr. Pumblechook, is Pip. This is Pip, is it? returned the young lady, who was very pretty and seemed very proud. Come in, Pip. Mr. Pumblechook was coming in also when she stopped him with the gate. "'Oh,' she said, "'did you wish to see Miss Havisham?' "'If Miss Havisham wished to see me,' 
returned Mr. Pumblechook, discomfited. "'Ah!' said the girl. "'But you see she don't.' She said it so finely, and in such an undiscussable way, that Mr. Pumblechook, though in a condition of ruffled dignity, could not protest. But he eyed me severely, as if I had done anything to him, and departed with the words reproachfully delivered. "'Boy, let your behaviour here be a credit unto them which brought you up by hand.' I was not free from apprehension that he would come back to a pound through the gate. "'And sixteen? But he didn't. My young conductress locked the gate, and we went across the courtyard. It was paved and clean, but grass was growing in every crevice. The brewery buildings had a little lane of communication with it, and the wooden gates of that lane stood open, and all the brewery beyond stood open, away to the high enclosing wall, and all was empty and disused. The cold wind seemed to blow colder there than outside the gate, and it made a shrill noise in howling in and out at the open sides of the brewery, like the noise of wind in the rigging of a ship at sea. She saw me looking at it, and she said, "'You could drink without hurt all the strong beer that's brewed there now, boy.' "'I should think I could, miss,' said I, in a shy way. "'Better not try to brew beer there now, or it would turn out sour, boy.' "'Don't you think so?' "'It looks like it, miss. "'Not that anybody means to try,' she added. "'For that's all done with, "'and the place will stand as idle as it is till it falls. "'As to strong beer, there's enough of it in the cellars already "'to drown the manor-house.' "'Is that the name of this house, miss?' "'One of its names, boy.' "'It has more than one, then, miss. "'One more. "'Its other name was Satis.' which is Greek, or Latin, or Hebrew, or all three, or all one to me, for enough. "'Enough house,' said I. "'That's a curious name, miss.' "'Yes,' she replied. "'But it meant more than it said. It meant, when it was given, that whoever had this house could want nothing else. They must have been easily satisfied in those days, I should think. But don't loiter, boy.' Though she called me boy so often, and with a carelessness that was far from complimentary. She was of about my own age. She seemed much older than I, of course, being a girl, and beautiful and self-possessed, and she was as scornful of me as if she had been one and twenty, and a queen. We went into the house by a side door. The great front entrance had two chains across it outside, and the first thing I noticed was that the passages were all dark, and that she had left a candle burning there. She took it up, and we went through more passages, and up a staircase, and still it was all dark, and only the candle lighted us. At last we came to the door of a room, and she said, "'Go in,' I answered, more in shyness than politeness. "'After you, miss.' To this she returned, "'Don't be ridiculous, boy. I'm not going in,' and scornfully walked away and, what was worse, took the candle with her. This was very uncomfortable, and I was half afraid. However, the only thing to be done being to knock at the door, I knocked, and was told from within to enter. I entered, therefore, and found myself in a pretty large room, 
well lighted with wax candles. No glimpse of daylight was to be seen in it. It was a dressing-room, as I suppose from the furniture, though much of it was of forms and uses then quite unknown to me. But prominent in it was a draped table with a gilded-looking glass, and that I made out at first sight to be a fine lady's dressing-table. Whether I should have made out this object so soon, if there had been no fine lady sitting at it, I cannot say. In an armchair, with an elbow resting on the table, and her head leaning on that hand, sat the strangest lady I have ever seen, or shall ever see. She was dressed in rich materials, satins and lace and silks, all of white. Her shoes were white, and she had a long white veil, dependent from her hair, and she had bridal flowers in her hair, but her hair was white. Some bright jewels sparkled on her neck and on her hands, and some other jewels lay sparkling on the table. Dresses, less splendid than the dress she wore, and half-packed trunks, were scattered about. She had not quite finished dressing, for she had but one shoe on. The other was on the table near her hand. Her veil was but half arranged, her watch and chain were not put on, and some lace for her bosom lay with those trinkets, and with her handkerchief and gloves and some flowers, and a prayer-book, all confusedly heaped about the looking-glass. It was not in the first few moments that I saw all these things, though I saw more of them in the first moments than might be supposed. But I saw that everything within my view, which ought to be white, had been white long ago, and had lost its lustre, and was faded and yellow. I saw that the bride, within the bridal dress, had withered like the dress, and like the flowers, and no brightness left but the brightness of her sunken eyes. I saw that the dress had been put upon the rounded figure of a young woman, and that the figure upon which it now hung loose had shrunk to skin and bone. Once I had been taken to see some ghastly waxwork at the fair, representing I know not what impossible personage lying in state. Once I had been taken to one of our old marsh churches, to see a skeleton in the ashes of a rich dress that had been dug out of a vault under the church pavement. Now waxwork and skeleton seemed to have dark eyes that moved and looked at me. I should have cried out, if I could. "'Who is it?' said the lady at the table. "'Pip, ma'am.' "'Pip?' "'Mr. Pumblechook's boy, ma'am, come to play.' "'Come nearer. Let me look at you. Come close.' It was when I stood before her, avoiding her eyes, that I took note of the surrounding objects in detail, and saw that her watch had stopped at twenty minutes to nine, and that a clock in the room had stopped at twenty minutes to nine. "'Look at me,' said Miss Havisham. "'You are not afraid of a woman who has never seen the sun since you were born?' I regret to state that I was not afraid of telling the enormous lie comprehended in the answer. No. Do you know what I touch here? She said, laying her hands one upon the other on her left side. Yes, ma'am. It made me think of the young man. What do I touch? Your heart. Broken, 
She uttered the word with an eager look, and with strong emphasis, and with a weird smile that had a kind of boast in it. Afterwards she kept her hands there for a little while, and slowly took them away, as if they were heavy. "'I am tired,' said Miss Havisham. "'I want diversion, and I have done with men and women. Play!' I think it will be conceded, by my most disputatious reader, that she could hardly have directed an unfortunate boy to do anything in the wide world more difficult to be done under the circumstances. "'I sometimes have sick fancies,' she went on, "'and I have a sick fancy that I want to see some play. There, there!' with an impatient movement of the fingers of her right hand. Play! 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 For a moment, with the fear of my sisters working me before my eyes, I had a desperate idea of starting round the room in the assumed character of Mr. Pumblechook's chaise-cart. But I felt myself so unequal to the performance, that I gave it up, and stood looking at Miss Havisham, in what I suppose she took for a dogged manner, inasmuch as she said when we had taken a good look at each other, "'Are you sullen and obstinate?' "'No, ma'am. I'm very sorry for you. I'm very sorry I can't play just now. If you complain of me, I should get into trouble with my sister. So I would do it if I could. But it's so new here, and so strange, and so fine, and melancholy.' I stopped, fearing I might say too much, or had already said it, and we took another look at each other. Before she spoke again, she turned her eyes from me, and looked at the dress she wore, and at the dressing-table, and finally at herself in the looking-glass. "'So new to him,' she muttered. "'So old to me. So strange to him, so familiar to me. So melancholy to both of us. Call Estella.' As she was still looking at the reflection of herself, I thought she was still talking to herself, and kept quiet. "'Call Estella!' she repeated, flashing a look at me. "'You can do that. Call Estella. At the door.' To stand in the dark, in a mysterious passage of an unknown house, bawling Estella to a scornful young lady, neither visible nor responsive, and feeling at a dreadful liberty so to roar out her name, was almost as bad as playing to order. But she answered at last, and her light came along the dark passage like a star. Miss Havisham beckoned her to come close, and took up a jewel from the table, and tried its effect upon her fair young bosom, and against her pretty brown hair. "'Your own one day, my dear, and you will use it well. Let me see you play cards with this boy.' With this boy? Why, he is a common labouring boy." I thought I overheard Miss Havisham answer, only it seemed so unlikely. "'Well, you can break his heart.' "'What do you play, boy?' asked Estella of myself with the greatest disdain. "'Nothing but beggar my neighbour, Miss—' "'Beggar him?' said Miss Havisham to Estella. So we sat down to cards. It was then I began to understand 
that everything in the room had stopped, like the watch and the clock, a long time ago. I noticed that Miss Havisham put down the jewel exactly on the spot from which she had taken it up. As Estella dealt the cards, I glanced at the dressing-table again, and saw that the shoe upon it, once white, now yellow, had never been worn. I glanced down at the foot from which the shoe was absent, and saw that the silk stocking on it, once white, now yellow, had been trodden ragged. Without this arrest of everything, this standing still of all the pale, decayed objects, not even the withered bridal dress, and the collapsed form, could have looked so like grave-clothes, or the long veil so like a shroud. So she sat, corpse-like, as we played at cards, the frillings and trimmings on her bridal dress looking like earthy paper. I knew nothing, then, of the discoveries that are occasionally made of bodies buried in ancient times, which fall to powder in the moment of being distinctly seen. But I have often thought since, that she must have looked as if the admission of the natural light of day would have struck her to dust. "'He calls knaves jacks, this boy,' said Estella, with disdain, before our first game was out. "'And what coarse hands he has, and what thick boots!' I had never thought of being ashamed of my hands before, but I began to consider them a very indifferent pair. Her contempt for me was so strong that it became infectious, and I caught it. She won the game, and I dealt. I misdealt, as was only natural when I knew she was lying in wait for me to do wrong, and she denounced me for a stupid, clumsy, labouring boy. "'You say nothing of her,' remarked Miss Havisham to me, as she looked on. "'She says many hard things of you, but you say nothing of her. What do you think of her?' "'I don't like to say,' I stammered. "'Tell me in my ear,' said Miss Havisham, bending down. "'I think she's very proud,' I replied in a whisper. "'Anything else?' "'I think she's very pretty.' "'Anything else?' "'I think she's very insulting.' She was looking at me then, with a look of supreme aversion. "'Anything else? I think I should like to go home.' "'And never see her again, though she is so pretty?' "'I'm not sure that I shouldn't like to see her again, but I should like to go home now.' "'You shall go soon,' said Miss Havisham aloud. "'Play the game out.' Saving for the one weird smile at first, I should have felt almost sure that Miss Havisham's face could not smile. It had dropped into a watchful and brooding expression, most likely when all the things about her had become transfixed, and it looked as if nothing could ever lift it up again. Her chest had dropped, so that she stooped, and her voice had dropped, so that she spoke low, and with a dead lull upon her. Altogether she had the appearance of having dropped, body and soul, within and without, under the weight of a crushing blow. I played the game to an end with Estella, and she beggared me. She threw the cards down on the table when she had won them all, as if she despised them for having been one of me. "'When shall I have you here again?' 
said Miss Havisham. Let me think. I was beginning to remind her that to-day was Wednesday, when she checked me with her former impatient movement of the fingers of her right hand. There, there! I know nothing of days of the week. I know nothing of weeks of the year. Come again after six days. You hear? Yes, ma'am. Estella, take him down. Let him have something to eat, and let him roam and look about him while he eats. Go, Pip. I followed the candle down, as I had followed the candle up, and she stood it in the place where we had found it. Until she opened the side entrance, I had fancied, without thinking about it, that it must necessarily be night-time. The rush of the daylight quite confounded me, and made me feel as if I had been in the candlelight of the strange room many hours. "'You are to wait here, you boy,' said Estella, and disappeared and closed the door. I took the opportunity of being alone in the courtyard to look at my coarse hands and my common boots. My opinion of those accessories was not favourable. They had never troubled me before, but they troubled me now, as vulgar appendages. I determined to ask Joe why he had ever taught me to call those picture-cards jacks, which ought to be called knaves. I wished Joe had been rather more genteelly brought up, and then I should have been so too. She came back with some bread and meat, and a little mug of beer. She put the mug down on the stones of the yard, and gave me the bread and meat without looking at me, as insolently as if I were a dog in disgrace. I was so humiliated, hurt, spurned, offended, angry. Sorry, I, I cannot hit upon the right name for the smart. God knows what his name was. The tears started to my eyes. The moment they sprang there, the girl looked at me with a quick delight in having been the cause of them. This gave me power to keep them back, and to look at her. So, she gave a contemptuous toss, but with the sense, I thought, of having made too sure that I was so wounded, and left me. But when she was gone, I looked about me for a place to hide my face in, and got behind one of the gates in the brewery lane, and leaned my sleeve against the wall there, and leaned my forehead on it, and cried. As I cried, I kicked the wall, and took a hard twist at my hair. So bitter were my feelings, and so sharp was the smart without a name that needed counteraction. My sister's bringing up had made me sensitive. In the little world in which children have their existence, whosoever brings them up, there is nothing so finely perceived and so finely felt as injustice. It may be only small injustice that the child can be exposed to, but the child is small, and its world is small, and its rocking-horse stands as many hands high, according to scale, as a big-boned Irish hunter. Within myself I had sustained from my babyhood a perpetual conflict with injustice. I had known, from the time when I could speak, that my sister, in her capricious and violent coercion, was unjust to me. I had cherished a profound conviction that her bringing me up by hand gave her no right to bring me up by jerks. Through all my punishments, disgraces, fasts, and vigils, and other penitential performances, 
I had nursed this assurance, and to my communing so much with it, in a solitary and unprotected way, I, in great part, refer the fact that I was morally timid and very sensitive. I got rid of my injured feelings for the time, by kicking them into the brewery wall, and twisting them out of my hair, and then I smoothed my face with my sleeve, and came from behind the gate. The bread and meat were acceptable, and the beer was warming and tingling, and I was soon in spirits to look about me. To be sure, it was a deserted place, down to the pigeon-house in the brewery-yard, which had been blown crooked on its pole by some high wind, and would have made the pigeons think themselves at sea, if there had been any pigeons there to be rocked by it. But there were no pigeons in the dovecot, no horses in the stable, no pigs in the sty, no malt in the storehouse, no smells of grains and beer in the copper or the vat. All the uses and scents of the brewery might have evaporated with its last reek of smoke. In a by-yard there was a wilderness of empty casks, which had a certain sour remembrance of better days lingering about them, but it was too sour to be accepted as a sample of the beer that was gone, and in this respect I remember those recluses as being like most others. Behind the furthest end of the brewery was a rank garden with an old wall, not so high but that I could struggle up and hold on long enough to look over it, and see that the rank garden was the garden of the house, and that it was overgrown with tangled weeds, but that there was a track upon the green and yellow paths, as if someone sometimes walked there, and that Estella was walking away from me even then. But she seemed to be everywhere. For when I yielded to the temptation presented by the casks, and began to walk on them, I saw her walking on them at the end of the yard of casks. She had her back towards me, and held her pretty brown hair spread out in her two hands, and never looked round, and passed out of my view directly. So, in the brewery itself, by which I mean the large paved lofty place in which they used to make the beer, and where the brewing utensils still were, when I first went into it, and, rather oppressed by its gloom, stood near the door looking about me. I saw her pass among the extinguished fires, and ascend some light iron stairs, and go out by a gallery high overhead, as if you were going out into the sky. It was in this place, and at this moment, that a strange thing happened to my fancy. I thought it a strange thing then, and I thought it a stranger thing long afterwards. I turned my eyes, a little dimmed by looking up at the frosty light, towards a great wooden beam in a low nook of the building near me on my right hand, and I saw a figure hanging there by the neck, a figure all in yellow-white, with but one shoe to the feet, and it hung so that I could see that the faded trimmings of the dress were like earthy paper, and that the face was Miss Havisham's with a movement going over the whole countenance, as if she were trying to call to me. In the terror of seeing the figure, and in the terror of being certain that it had not been there a moment before, I at first ran from it, and then I ran towards it, and my terror was greatest of all when I found no figure there. Nothing less than the frosty light of the cheerful sky, the sight of people passing beyond the bars of the courtyard gate, and the reviving influence of the rest of the bread and meat and beer, would have brought me round. Even with those aids, 
I might not have come to myself as soon as I did, but that I saw Estella approaching with the keys to let me out. She would have some fair reason for looking down upon me, I thought, if she saw me frightened, and she would have no fair reason. She gave me a triumphant glance in passing me, as if she rejoiced that my hands were so coarse, and my boots were so thick, and she opened the gate, and stood holding it. I was passing out, without looking at her, when she touched me with a taunting hand. "'Why don't you cry?' "'Because I don't want to.' "'You do?' said she. "'You have been crying till you were half blind, and you are near crying again now.' <laughs> she laughed contemptuously, pushing me out, and locked the gate upon me. I went straight to Mr. Pumblechook's, and was immensely relieved to find him not at home. So, leaving word with the shopman on what day I was wanted at Miss Havisham's again, I set off on the four-mile walk to our forge, pondering as I went along on all I had seen, and deeply revolving that I was a common labouring boy, that my hands were coarse, that my boots were thick, that I had fallen into a despicable habit of calling knaves jacks, that I was much more ignorant than I had considered myself last night, and generally that I was in a low-lived, bad way. End of chapter 8